Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're chatting to Tyler Weatherall, author of memoir No Way Home. We discuss the role of truth in memoir, working out your thoughts and feelings on the page and the process of working out the story behind the story. The grey house dad took us to bears no resemblance to the yellow house in my head. My yellow house is inescapably beautiful, like a promise that can't be broken. It has become a mythic place, a place we might go when we die. I built it on the backs of second-hand stories told to me over the years and then remembered and retold so many times the truth has become lost like a fading photograph. My family moved into the Yellow House in 1981, shortly after Caitlin was born in anticipation of making more babies. Built in the sun-drenched wine country of northern Marin County, like Midas, everything the house touched turned to gold, from its lemon-yellow walls to the bleach-blonde crowns of my brother and infant sister. Mum spent her days barefoot and serene, padding around the eight acres of land with a pair of secateurs in her hand watching Kate out of the corner of her eye. In theory, Dad had quit the pot business by this time, a promise Mum had elicited from him just after Caitlin was born. As he had cradled his first daughter in his arms, still astonished by her existence and so in love with every little part of her, Dad was happy to quit. He promised Mum he wouldn't take on another deal without her permission, and even though this promise sounded flaky and thin, she still pocketed it for safekeeping, knowing she might need it later on. Dad channeled his surplus energy into developing what he called our compound. He reinforced the lake, draining it and installing an overflow system so the fish he had stocked it with wouldn't die every summer when the lake dried up. He built an octagonal tennis court so the balls didn't collect in the corners and designed a state-of-the-art playground with Evan's input. He installed an intercom so we could all communicate from any room in the house, except it was pointless as Mum refused to be communicated with at someone else's whim. Dad collected vintage cars and art. We played with toys as Warhol's mouth presided over us, red-lipped and enormous. He spent a lot of time sitting in a sun lounger by the pool, naked with his emergency red telephone in his lap, working on his tan while contemplating our future. This was to be the start of a great dynasty. It was also important to have bronzed hands because they looked especially handsome beneath the white shirt. Our peacock would join him, fan his green feathers and strut as they basked in each other's reflected glory. The yellow house was overrun with animals. There were two ponies in the paddock, which Mum rode with Kate on a horse before she could walk. Dad had sent Mum shopping with $5,000 cash, and she had returned with two rescue ponies and a bag full of charity shop clothes. She returned 4950 and went to introduce Lucky and Rub to their new home. There was the Siamese cat called Sativa, who meowed down the chimney whenever she was locked out, sending great echoing wails through the house until someone opened the back door. On the lake, there were a pair of black swans imported from Australia as a housewarming present from one of Dad's associates. And there were the ducks, who finally had ducklings just weeks before we were due to leave. 
Every night, Mum collected the ducklings into a box and brought them inside to be safe from the foxes. Mother Duck would wait on the doorstep for her babies to be returned in the morning. One day when Mum was unwell, Dad left the box outside. In the morning, all that was left was torn cardboard and a bloody trail of yellow feathers. Not one baby was left. Mum said that was the first thing Dad did that she could not forgive. For days afterward, the mother duck waited on the doorstep, quacking imploringly. By then, Dad was busy preparing for our departure, and everywhere he went, she followed him, flying overhead, hoping he would lead her to her babies. It was the persistent presence of the morning duck that broke him. He sat down by the lake and cried. He cried for his mistakes, for his family's lost future, and for the duck's lost babies. Hi, Tyler. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the Riff Raff podcast. You've come all the way from the Cotswolds today. Yes, via New York, via Cornwall. <laughs> so so multi, multi-country. Um, so, international, uh, I think that's the word. That is the word. That, that is the one. That is the one. So eloquent. Um, so for those who haven't heard about your memoir, No Way Back, No Way Home, Jesus, please can you tell us a little about what it's about? Um, so No Way Home is about my childhood growing up on the run from the FBI. Um so <laughs> I know it always sounds so extravagant when I say it like that. It's like, really? Is that is that what happened? Um, but it is. And uh, my dad was an uh, international pot smuggler in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And uh, we went on the run when I was two. Um, none of which I knew until I was quite a bit older. So the book's about my discovering of this world and it all kind of falling apart around us and our family kind of figuring out how to get through it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, for anyone who's just heard that synopsis, (laughs) I think they're just going to go and buy it immediately. It's an an incredible premise. And the fact that it's true is even more incredible. So the book, like you you mentioned at the end, that it's it's sort of over the course of writing it, it took many forms. So it sort of started off as a first, as like a biography of your father, and then it turned into kind of a Mm. novel based on a true story. And then eventually it came to the kind of to be a memoir. And I just wondered, like, what, how that kind of journey happened, like, going through the process of that. Yeah, I mean, it was a very long-winded process. Potentially, you know, I know a lot of your listeners are writers, and I know for me, I was so keen to write a book. I, I'd, I'd always wanted to be a writer, and I had this crazy upbringing, and at some point, it just felt like I, I, I had this urgency, Um in some ways, looking back, potentially, if I had waited, I might have come around to the conclusion that I had to write a memoir a bit more easily, um, with a bit more experience. But at 24 years old, um, my dad was recently out of prison, and um, he wanted to sell the story to a ghostwriter or a publisher to have it written by somebody else. And I felt very strongly that I did not want this to happen. It had to be, I wanted to tell the story. Um, and... At that point, I quit my job on a magazine in London and I moved to LA to live with him and I interviewed him every day. And it was a really beautiful time for us because it was a chance for him to explain everything that had happened. And we used to sit under these like these lemon trees in the garden of his house in LA and have these really deep conversations and him just tr- striving to get me to see that it, one thing led to another and at no point was he trying to make decisions that would cause us hurt or harm. Um, and it's, you know, just to cycle back a bit, it's, it's interesting because 
when he was in prison, he started writing his autobiography on a prison typewriter, like painstakingly. So cool. Three hundred thousand words or something. Yeah, it's it's huge. It's like it's a, like a brick. I and I've got like the original copy of it. It's huge, and uh, I he would send me chapters from of that. And before I knew the whole story, he was sending me these little pieces he'd written, kind of preparing me for what was to come. Um, and even then we'd talk about one day actually making a movie together and I, I wanted to be a director, so I, I was going to direct it. And, you know, we'd share these kind of wild fantasies about what it, what it might be and something good coming from it, from like all this heartache. So I knew that it was something I needed to do. It was the, the germ, the germs of it, whatever, the, the seed of it was there very early. And so I started off writing his biography. And his story is incredible. So much mm-hmm. of it, there's so much more of it than is in the books. I couldn't fit it all in. Like every single smuggle he did is an adventure. And some went terribly wrong. Um, he was like kitting out airplanes and taking out all the seats in airplanes and flying them around the world and all these wild stories. So I was like, I have to tell his story. And then as I was writing it, I just found myself getting angry with him again. Because all of a sudden it was like he was the hero of his story, as we sort of all are of our own. And it was the story he had created so he could better live with the choices he had made. A story of wild escapades and, um, you know, that we've heard that narrative, haven't we? Mm-hmm. We've got Mr. Nice. We've got, you know, Blow, which is sort of a darker version of it. But I felt like it didn't take on board the hurt that had been caused and the women and children of are hurt by those kind of men's misadventures. Yeah. What, so, an, what an incredible way of coming up with the book that you eventually wrote to sit down with your father and do yeah. it collaboratively, mm. but then to move away from that slight collaboration in terms of being able to maybe see past the narrative he was presenting to take it on as your own project. I think that's such an in- interesting way of coming to write the story you wanted to write. Yeah, and partly also just because I think I didn't know what I wanted to write. I was I was very young and I hadn't got a lot of, lot of experience in taking that time to think before you, like, what are you setting out to do? What are you trying to say? And I hadn't done a lot of the processing that's involved mm. with what had happened. I, you know, I found myself angry with him again at that point uh, and an anger I thought I had dealt with. And so part of the move away was also keeping it at arm's length mm. so it became a novel yeah. and then I you know I've called myself maybe a dozen different names over the course of all the rewrites <laughs> this was a very long-winded way of writing this book how long did it take you the novel um I guess like three years in total what, so from, you wrote the novel first and then you've come to then you've yeah, written, oh wow but like from like I'm quitting my job and moving to Los Angeles to there is my book on a bookshelf that was 10 years okay so it, it took yeah. a minute. Yeah, that's Which, good. If you told me at 24, like, you're not going to see this on a bookshelf till you're 34, I would have been like, no, not I'm not doing, doing it. it. <laughs> I, think, I think that sense of urgency to write a book is mm-hmm. something that everybody listening is going to relate to. It's a, almost a sort of, it's a physical feeling like the book is trying to jump out of your body and it's so it's incredible I think it'll be very reassuring for a lot of people to hear that you had that but then that you also had the patience to wait and tell this right story well like writing a book is definitely like a bit of a switch in consciousness and like if you if if you're especially if you're writing a personal journey and because like and that's like that kind of like idea that you're 
like sort of like working through what you kind of went through, working out what the kind of what was the story that needed to be told, working out that kind of like the narrative of the family and a daughter, and working kind of out that that was the thing that was different to tell. Like it's you needed to go through the long years of writing it to realise that was the story that kind of needed to be told, maybe. Completely, and and it's a process of you know that's kind of what we're doing with like when we're essay writing or any nonfiction. And I hadn't, I didn't really have, even though I was a journalist. I didn't have a lot of experience writing that kind of personal essay form where, where you do so much thinking first um, and and you're you're working out your feelings, you're working out your thoughts on the page. It's kind of, that's part of the process. I think actually that was a Vivian Gornick coax that someone else smarter than me said that once. <laughs> um, and so I didn't know what it was I was doing. Um, and it took me a long time to figure it out. And the novel, I could... I went and like hid away in uh, a shed in Devon and wrote most of it in three months. Wow. But then the rest of it was editing on either side of that. And like to go back to what you're saying about urgency, um, I kept being, so I was working as a journalist and I, I, I'd be offered a job that, you know, it was 2008, 2009 as the recession. And I'd be like, I'm crazy. I should take this job. This is totally, it's full time. It, it would be great for my career. And there'd be part of me that was so scared that if I did that, I would never write this book. And so I kept feeling like I was making sacrifices to the literary gods. So I was like, if I keep saying, like sacrificing things that could potentially be good and interesting, then eventually this has to happen. And if I don't do that, it will never happen. Um, and I came up against that again and again. Oh, that's just music to my ears, <laughs> even though I haven't actually done that. Um, it's just that's, I think, what we all aspire to, isn't it? Saying no and focusing all our time and energy yeah putting writing first um you mentioned blow you mentioned mr nice um the world of international drug smuggling which (laughs) i'm going to admit right now is not one i am that okay with um is often glamorized very much so in movies and media and books this isn't this is a very personal story it's very raw as you mentioned you go into detail about the collateral damage that happens when this seemingly um, glamorous lifestyle takes place. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why it was important to not glamorise it and sort of how you moved away from that. I guess when you're living it, you know, we, we were still primarily a family. So life was around the kitchen table mum still had to you know discipline us she still had to make sure that we did our homework after school we still had loads of fun going on family holidays to the beach and you know eating packed lunches and all those very quintessential family experiences are what I think of when I think of my childhood and then there was this thread that ran through it that was completely I mean I I guess there were moments of glamour, certainly for my my parents. Um, But for us, we were kids. It was just what we thought was normal. Um, And moving from place to place became kind of second nature. It still is. I still move from place to place all the time. And I wanted to represent the reality of that, of of the very universal experience. We know we all have problems in our families that we have to deal with and we have to figure out how to get through and how we hurt each other and we have to figure out how we can still love each other the same afterwards and all of that very you know universal experience of family I wanted that to be the heart of the story and then 
through the extraordinary lens of while well, being on the run and the international drug smuggling and uh, being under surveillance and having the FBI on the doorstep or like trying to call your first boyfriend when you know your phones are tapped. <laughs> and I felt like the meeting point of those two worlds was actually where it got interesting. Mm. It's like, I'm going to school as a normal schoolgirl, and me and my sister didn't realize that we're being followed. And it makes it more relatable. And that's actually what the experience was. And maybe if I had glamorized it, potentially it would have been a little bit easier to sell uh, as a story. And I think there was probably quite a lot of pressure of like, why hasn't this been a more Hollywood story? Why do we spend so much time drinking tea and eating crumpets? Um, but I didn't want that. I didn't want that to be my, uh, my narrative because I didn't think it was true. The um, the bits, I mean, it, it, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And the Thank bits you. that really, really resonated with me were were the bits that were about family and mm-hmm. the relationships that you have with your family and, um, you know, the, and the conversations that you've been able to have with them as a result of having this kind of like unique circumstance, like, you know, like the burst into tears at one point. <laughs> um, like just the, the kind of the sort of level of like, like the level of knowing of each other that you have with like both with with your dad like because I thought you very masterfully you know like the whole way through the book you're the character of your the character of your dad but your dad is kind of very much he's at arm's length you know like he's a mystery to the to the reader right I mean even though you kind of know his vibe you like his vibe like you kind of you don't understand what's actually gone on and then gradually you hear what he's actually done and then kind of and then you get to have these conversations with him and and like and that kind of like that kind of gradual journey and then then you get to hear like kind of like his real motivations it's such a was that intentional? Were you thinking, like, were you trying to present him like, like you know, a being far away and then bringing him closer so that we could understand him towards the end? Like, the bit about him, like, getting to... I hope you, you can kind of, you know, he was like, I hope that you get, that you communicate in the book that, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to give away the yeah. end. <laughs> yeah. I know which, I know which I mean, thing. Yeah. <laughs> was it intentional? I find it that balance as a writer between what you do subconsciously and what you do intentionally and I've never figured out exactly how much we're meant to be aware and while you're wanting to let things come out on the page that surprise you equally at some point you recognize them and then you go oh actually that is interesting um and that then you then you draw it out more for you hone it down and that was one of the things that did happen I think initially one of the reasons why dad felt slightly distanced was because as a child who looked up to her father so much and me and him were so close in many ways he was a mythic figure you know he was the dad and part of his fall from grace his imprisonment my kind of pushback from him and being angry with him about everything that happened and everything we'd gone through was then me coming to understand him still as the amazing father he is and that you can be an amazing father and make mistakes and it's okay and so that process ended up being part of the journey of not just in my life but the journey of writing Um, because once I switched it to a memoir I had to I realized I had to show the reader me coming to terms with his decisions and when it was a novel it stopped when he was released from prison he never got any of that kind of reckoning Mm. that comes later um so in in some ways it was kind of accidental um and all those conversations are in real time in the book so Mm. the book spans up to 2016 which is when I finished it and that was me and dad right just like a month before my my final deadline sitting down and chatting a sandwich and having this really candid conversation and me just pushing him a little bit like I need to understand what happened and that became kind of the key turning point um and that was because we wrote it together he says that he feels that um 
as hard as some passages have been and he read it and cried and laughed all the way through and has worked very closely with me and and he said as difficult as it's been at times to hear what he put us through he thinks ultimately it's brought us closer and has helped him feel more open and reserved like more open and resolved about his own past mm. and that was wonderful to hear oh, yeah. what a wonderful thing to have come out of you know it's mm. a, it sounds like it was a very difficult experience to have gone through and if something positive is going to come out of it i'm so glad to hear it it's that that mm. you feel closer and people yeah. feel that they've been able to process you really get that closeness between mm. all of you as a family i think mm. yeah. yeah and in in as much as you had to do a lot of mental processing of what had happened it sounds like you also had to do a lot of processing of a lot of stuff <laughs> including your father's memoir <laughs> that was the brick of his experience um photographs conversations how did you go about collating all of the information and then disseminating it so that you could come up with the narrative obviously you did it over a long period of time very haphazardly someone I'm sure has a better system than me (laughs) um I partly because I move so often uh so I, I and because of the change the shifting nature of the story um, when I was writing it as a novel, my concern was fun, was more plot-based, and it was based on a true story, but I wasn't so concerned, concerned with the truth. And when I changed it to memoir, suddenly, as a journalist, it was incredibly important to me to get it right. And then I went back and I read all of my diaries and photocopied all the relevant passages, which, which was an intense experience mm-hmm. and actually, you know, quite mundane as well at points there's a lot about boys I don't even remember mm-hmm. um and then I went through all the family photographs and I interviewed my family um who've you know my sister has been incredibly helpful because she was older so she sh- should really have like a joint byline or something she's read every single page of this book numerous times um and I guess once I knew which key scenes I wanted to include it became easier to narrow down the material that I needed um and then the key, I tried to pe- find key facts that I could peg it on. So peg seat, so things that I knew, you know, you, what do you have? You have this sort of architecture. You have this blueprint in your your memory of of a, of a scene that you have some color to, and then you fill it out then with photographs of the house that you remember that scene taking place in. And then maybe I'll find a diary entry that also relates to it because our memory is very patchy, it's mm-hmm. fragmentary, and so I'd use all this other material to help pad out. Um, the the sort of sketch of what your memory gives you. Yeah, yeah, that makes really well. sense. The, the the one there's one part in the book when your mum sort of talks about it being she's happy with you to write it because it's kind of your version of the of the story. And I wanted to sort of ask, um, you know, like with memoir, that is it's everyone's it's it's the writer's version of events. And I wondered, you know, because obviously you say you've, you've had these wonderful conversations with your with your family and with you know with your sister, and she remembered things better than you. How how did you balance that kind of need to tell just your your story your version of the truth with kind of like the memories of other people and like how did you yeah how did you man- manage that did you did you were you tempted to be like well that's a cooler version of the, tr- of the story <laughs> I'll go with that um I it's very much a mosaic of all of them yeah um and there are, there are some points of key sort of conflicts where you really come up against one version another version like especially you know between my parents uh, there are sometimes their two stories totally were, were impossible to stand together. And then I tried to be really transparent in the book. 
about where I was maybe embellishing. And I, I think at this one point where I imagine a scene between mum and dad, when um, which they both had described to me, and I kind of recreate it on the page uh, when he had asked her permission to do one final deal. And it was such an important scene. I felt the reader needed to see it, but obviously I, I wasn't born. So I'm taking a liberty there that I think some memoirists might not take. Um, and in it at the end of it I said or it went something like that so I try and make it really clear and I feel like being showing the reader where you're drawing the line between memoir and fiction and then you're allowing them to make a decision about it um, rather than just portraying it as this is how it happened exactly right because I, I can't do that I it would be impossible um, because there are so many versions of the truth and everyone has their their stories and our our memories are are fictive machines you know we we don't open a book and uh, read our past as it was written each time you remember you rewrite that story Mm -hmm. Um, you recreate the series of events in your brain so it's open to change every single time so you have to bring in all those inconsistencies into the story and I think that makes it richer and more true Um, I tended to probably favor my sister's memories over mine because she was older but most of the time they aligned Mm -hmm. I think there's a key passage at the beginning where she remembered a scene with my dad being in a, a banana field and my memory had always been a cornfield and I chose the banana field because it, it made more sense because yeah. we were in St. Lucia and there probably was, you know, it probably was bananas rather than yeah. corn. And it's funny because then your image in your head changes. So, you know, you're, you're a screen that you, you project your memories onto when you, when you scroll through them and instead of seeing rows of corn, I then saw rows of bananas. Yeah. And now it's that way in my brain. It shows that, yeah. that it shifts and changes. And there's always also going to be a change in how you remember things based on like how you're what you're learning about the story that you're telling as you go. Like how you kind of like you know when you you know you can see one thing when you're like when you remember it as a 15 year old, but then when you remember it as a 20 like 29 year old or whatever, speaking to your family about it and what it actually meant, you can kind of I can you know you. It changes then with the meaning of what the situation was. You reinterpret it, definitely. I was so surprised at how much my memories matched with my diary. And I imagine that's because when you write down an event, you consolidate that version of the event. Um, and so e- even, uh, even you actually remember the diary entry rather than necessarily the original memory. I thought that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested about the process of interviewing your family. We've touched on you sitting down with your dad. I wanted to sort of move a bit towards your mum and your siblings oh your mum what a woman (laughs) (laughs) because I think a lot of people and you're very generous as a writer in that like you say I think some people would have decided made the decision that they're going to recreate a scene and and present it as fact or at least a version of a truth Mm. and not give that distinction to the reader and I think that's very generous not only to your reader but also to your family to caveat that this is my retelling how did you find sitting down with your family and in, in interviewing them? Were they eager to talk? Did they want to share their story? Did they ever show any sort of reticence? How did you even instigate those conversations? The, the only formal... So with my dad, it was the formal interviews. And those were more... Sorry, when I say yeah, yeah. interviews, I mean even just... Conversations. Those conversations, yeah. With my sister, I was living with her. So we were... Um, we were living together in a flat in Brick Lane when I started working on this. And as I was writing scenes, I would come into her room. I remember we had a lovely time when we, sit, we sat in her bed together and read her diary uh, mm-hmm. from those years. And it was, it was 
lovely to hear. It was a time when we were both teenagers, so we were kind of being, uh, we were really close when we were younger. When we were teenagers, we were defining ourselves against each other, as I think a lot of siblings do. Um, so it was lovely to actually have that insight into what she was thinking over those years. Um, and it was moments like those. So I, I would come to people with, to my, my brother or my sister or my mum with uh, whatever I was working on at that time and ask, you know, well, I'm working on this scene. What do you, rem- do you what do you remember about Portugal? Can you describe what it looked like to me and um, what was happening at that time? Um, with, I was living with my mum. I actually lived with her when I wrote a lot of this. Um, and... I we, that's when I was living in the shed at the bottom of the garden writing. It's actually a Victorian lavatory that had been like oh, barely wow. converted. It had no heating, so I used to have to wear like a ski suit with a hot water bottle like tucked in <laughs> side, and I'd write a chapter. Then I'd do like some star jumps to warm up, and then I'd write another chapter. Um, and there's no Wi-Fi and no phone line. Oh, and sounds like um, heaven. Apart I, from the freezing cold, the freezing cold. and and this kind of insanity because every you had no ver- no way of procrastinating. Anyway, side sidetracked. When I was when I was down in Devon. Um, I would come and have lunch and dinner with her. I'd leave the shed and, and return to the house. And we'd have these lovely long conversations about what she could remember. Um, and she very much felt like I should tell my story and write it as I remembered, as opposed. And she would tell me things. And she is a wonderful storyteller um, and remembers details in a much more uh, vivid way. Dad's very good on facts and mom's very good on like the sort of sensory details of a, of a scene. Um, and... So we would talk and have these conversations, but I was always, I I never wanted to press her too much because I I think she felt like it was my story. And so I, those conversations were always a little bit, I I never wanted to push further than what she would want to tell me naturally. Um, And yeah, some of those, I mean, there's whole scenes in this, like uh, the scene with her and the phone and she's hiding the telephone. Yeah, which for oh readers God, will be confusing, yeah. but um, oh my, 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 like, oh, my heart was like in my in my throat. I was like, oh my God, what's going to happen? So so much of it is, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's such a great great story in terms of like what goes on. But like the bit that like really got me was just the the relationships between you guys and the and and one thing I really found was I like I wonder kind of how you went about establishing the right tone because one thing that really kind of struck me was that I felt kind of like a real sense of like melancholy like all the way through it like this kind of visceral sense which made me kind of feel that too but then when you were feeling anger I totally was on board with that too like it made you kind of you know it was it it was like it was a journey like an emotional journey when you're reading it because you can it the, the way that you wrote made you address what how maybe you'd feel in that circumstance. And I wondered how, yeah, just how you kind of established the tone, like what, what kind of exercise that was in terms of how you wrote it. It's interesting because it took me so long, actually. I, I naturally grew up as a writer and it, this was an accident, which I'm quite pleased about because um, I don't think, I, I don't know if I could do it on purpose. When I began, I was so young that the early scenes, which I wrote about the earliest memories I had, I'm young in the book. Then as I get older, I was growing as a writer. So my tone actually naturally changed because we do, you know, as we get older as a writer, I think you you become a bit more thoughtful and you don't need to be quite so... Um, a lot of the descriptions at the beginning are much more flowery than they are at the end where it becomes almost plainer and trying to just really understand in plain language what happened. And so you get the sense of a voice growing up um, and I think that worked on the... I hope that worked on the page. Um and because I had the diary entries, I could just tap into what my I, exactly what I was thinking at that moment. So some some I mean, it, it's very far removed from the majority of it. There there's sen- there's sentences which 
sounded exactly like I did when I was 14 or 15 so I could really get the voice of what it was to be struggling in that moment um and like as I said it I was I genuinely was trying to understand throughout the process of writing this um what had happened and what it meant and what I felt about it yeah do you were there any parts of it that you felt that were particularly difficult to write or particularly enjoyable to write there are definitely parts that were difficult I left prison I, I resisted writing prison for a really long time because that was so difficult. Mm. Um, that was the hard, one of the hardest of all the things we went through because there was such a sense of togetherness. You know, we were a team. We were it was us versus them. Um, there were I, when you're a child, you have only a vaguely you know a vague sense of threat. You don't necessarily know what that threat means. So prison, while we understood that if Dad were caught, he would go to prison, we didn't really ever think that through. Um, and we were just rooting for him and rooting for them not to catch us and angry at them for pursuing us so heavily. Um, so when he did go to prison, I, the the pain of that I was I never felt prepared for. Um, and it's hard to see the, your father sort of reduced, which is what prison does to you. Um, and writing that chapter when I first go to visit him was incredibly difficult. I did some crying in that chapter. <laughs> it's, it's a heavy one. Mm. Um, and there were parts, when I when I rewrote it as a memoir, there were some passages that I remember I was writing. I can't remember which passage it was. Um, but I was writing, I remember finishing the chapter and feeling pleased with what I'd written. I looked down and my hands were shaking. I was like, oh, this is so strange. My hands are shaking. And then I realized that I was shaking all over and I'd, put myself back into like a state of shock which through the through the writing process and I went and sat on the doorstep in my writing space and poured myself a gin and tonic and took it (laughs) with me and it's like and I realized that it was having a physical effect on me the the writing and that really surprised me because the rewriting as a memoir was at that point in my 30s I really felt resolved on the past I didn't feel like I was holding any pain or anger any longer and yet it still could bring that all back. Mm. Um, and that was surprising. And I hope, you know, that's part of maybe what comes across when you read it is that that very, that it, it is a touchstone to all those feelings of trying to figure out, uh, you know, your anger for the things that your parents have done. And yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> which, which is a huge black hole. <laughs> well, I think everybody could probably yeah. write a book on that. Exactly. They? It's a very universal. We're mm. all trying to, you know, that's mm. what growing up seems to be. We spend our adult life trying to work out the, the problems of our childhood. <laughs> and if you haven't been asked this question before, you will get sick of being asked it, I'm sure. Was there anything that anybody, uh, any members of your family or anyone else asked you to leave out or that you decided to leave out? Yes. Um, so there were some uh, aspects I had to leave out for legal reasons because, uh, you know, there are a lot of people still on the run and stuff. And I was very, I was so scared. I'm, I'm still like still part of me that's really scared that something I wrote or did or said was going to in some way lead to someone getting in trouble. And I think that that kind of goes into why I wrote it as a novel is because I was just like, so you grow up being told not to tell anyone about what you've, that you're you're a fugitive and don't tell anyone your real name don't tell anyone where your father is and it's all the secrecy and then to write a book about it Mm. that took a really long time to figure out how to to talk openly about everything that happened so even now I feel that sense of like oh god I hope I mean 
it's been out for a little while and no one's gone to prison. <laughs> so I'm, I think maybe fingers crossed. That must crossed. come from the diary thing. That must come, that must be born like kind of in that sort of like the fear that you had when the diary got taken by the Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Maybe that comes from that. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's all the same. I mean, it was all the way through. Even we didn't tell anybody. Even as an adult, I never told anybody. Yeah. It wasn't until I, in the last couple of years. You were like, really? hey guys, by the way, <laughs> BT dubs. No, seriously, there have been some people who've messaged me from childhood and been like, oh my God, I had no idea. It's like, yeah, that that was happening all that time. Yeah. Um, quite a lot of people. I think it was quite surprising. Um, but there were also some scenes that I put in which I chose not to. As a writer, my process was just like splurge it on the page and just don't feel anything holding you back. No one's going to read any of this. Get it out of you. Then sit back and think about what you have. And there were some things that I wrote and on reflection, I realized that they weren't necessary to the story I was trying to tell. Um, and the, those bits I cut and I'm glad to have. Because don't, you don't need to tell everything. You just need to be honest about, and, about the story that you're telling. And the emotional truth of it mm. and I tried as hard not you know as possible not to trespass on other people's stories mm. and um, in, in that way I suppose when we're writing it isn't that different at all from fiction writing the editing process certainly you know it still has to be narrative it has still has to have drive and still have to have momentum forward and um so you have always been a writer you've always been a writer you you know you wrote dad your dad loads of stories when he was in prison and wrote loads <laughs> yeah. of letters and stuff like that and so you've always been a writer you're a travel writer now um I wondered like because of like the level of like kind of communication that you've had to have with your family and the le- and the different th- different scenarios that you've been through, do you reckon that any of your upbringing has contributed to the being a writer? Do you reckon that it's like you know like the sort of yeah? Do you reckon that's made any change in you that is to do with your writing? Definitely. I I mean it's hard to you know I I, I don't know it's quite difficult to isolate the why of who we are and why we've become that way yeah, yeah can you just basically <laughs> analyze yourself <laughs> in the, the next universe, three minutes and tell us <laughs> um so i think that the um we you find yourself trying to explain what happened and that when you have this many stories that have happened to you and i, I feel like once one of something like this happens that things keep happening like my life hasn't been ordinary afterwards either and I don't know if it's just that when you start off with parents who make extraordinary decisions you keep making unusual decisions yourself (laughs) so I felt like storytelling became such an important part of understanding what had happened and so maybe that contributed to me being a writer Um, but probably my mum giving me books um, and reading to me as a kid and all my like early childhood memories are stories um, and I loved something me and her shared a passion for and every time I'd whiz through the next book on the bookshelf she'd go try this one next and she'd give me another one um, it was how I felt like I understood the world and I remember there was one um, what did I read Maggie O'Farrell I think uh, was it that? Was that when you were gone I think and it's about someone's lover dying. And I found myself walking through Paris. Me and my mum were on a weekend break together um, before I'd left home. Uh, and I was walking through Paris weeping for someone else's dead lover. And I just thought, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. I want to make other people cry for pain that is not their own. And if I can do that, if I have the chance to do that, that's that's what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. That is, <laughs> I think that's probably the best description of why any of us write. To make people feel things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, or to, you know, to make people feel something beyond what is their own experience even if they are on some level experiencing it as their own um a bit of arm <laughs> <psychology for laughs> you all there. Um, you're welcome um so you've mastered the memoir 
what's next for you? Are you writing a second book and is it going to be a memoir or are we returning to the fictional novel? Or are you working on the script with your dad? Uh, well, <laughs> to, be, to be seen on that one, well, um, fingers crossed there might be. Uh, I'd, I'd love to, it'd be such a fun thing to turn into mm-hmm. uh, something for the screen. I think it lends itself very well to that. And having always talked about doing it from being a little kid, I would love to do it. Um, so we'll have to wait and see on that one. I am. It's really hard to choose what to do next. I spent so long doing this first one, and it was almost in my head. I was like, "And then that's it. I'm done forever." I was like, "Obviously, you're not." And the the goalposts keep moving as you get older. And in my head, I was like, "Oh, well, I'll feel satisfied once I've published a book." And no, you're you're not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the goalposts just keep. It's that writing moving. trick yes. that everyone writers think they're going to be like, "I'll have my book out, and my life will be complete, and I feel then, good about myself." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, how foolish! Yeah. Uh, so there's a novel. I'm writing a novel, and I'm also writing. Um, potentially doing another non-fiction essay collection and um, yeah those and I'm finding it hard to choose which thing to throw myself completely mm. in of all of them mm. oh, how exciting well, I can't wait so to read it thank you thank you so much uh, Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening we're so incredibly grateful so please do let us know what you think what you'd like more of and any debut authors you'd like to hear from Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.